today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Foundations matter. Our first house uh, my wife Corey and I bought uh, was in Madison, Wisconsin, where we served for a long time. And it was a little, little, little teeny-weeny house. And it was situated in this cute neighborhood within walking distance of the University of Wisconsin. Go Badgers, they're four and one. Season's off to a good start. And it was an old house, so it needed a lot of work. And I'm not great at that. My wife is excellent at it, uh, so that I married well. Uh, One of the first things we did that we had money for was to paint the interior. So that's kind of low-hanging fruit. And so we painted the interior by we, I mean my wife painted the interior. Uh, I'm not, as I said, I'm not very good at it. She loves painting. I was really excited because it would freshen things up, but also when you would walk in that house right to the, on the right side of the wall, the entryway, there was a large crack. So I was like, great, you know, we get a new color of paint and then the crack will be gone. (laughs) Why are you guys laughing at me? So yeah, you know the story. Two weeks later, I come in and the crack is back. And I was angry, yeah. And so uh, my wife's uh, father, he's been in the trades his whole life. He's like that guy. And so he was over one day and I was like, Barry, why is the crack back? I'm like really upset. And he's like, well, he's like, you have foundational issues. And I'm like, I know I'm not perfect, but that's not a nice way to talk about your new son-in-law. No, of course he meant the foundation. And he said, in older homes, uh, the foundations will settle, and sometimes it brings cracks in the wall, and there is nothing then you could do about the crack, so you better get used to it. And it got me thinking, I've thought tons about that story through the years, as I introspectively look at my life and the many cracks, as we look at community life and we look at the world, we're doing that all the time. We should do that all the time. And we give an inordinate amount of attention and money to fixing the cracks, but very little attention to the foundation. And our pastor today talks all about what type of foundation 
are our churches and our communities and our lives built upon. This is the third week of a series called Strangers in a Strange Land off of the letter uh, Peter wrote. We call First Peter. We think that Peter wrote it around AD 62-ish. Always got to say ish. We don't know for sure. We know that he was martyred by Nero around that same time. So probably right before that, he's probably in Rome, probably knows the end is near. And he's writing First Peter to be a circular pastoral letter to the churches in the five provinces of Asia Minor, which he most likely helped plant and nurture and shepherd. So these churches were close to his heart. I always like when I'm reading scripture, we say often around here, the Bible's not written to us, but it is for us. So to understand what it has for us, we have to kind of channel and get in the mindset of those original readers. It's difficult because there's a lot that we don't see and get, and we're going to do some of that work this morning. But when I'm reading a letter, I like to kind of come up with a fictional character who might have been that original reader. And First Peter, for me, that fictional character, for whatever reasons, always been like this 19-year-old kid who's a Gentile. Yes, there were Jews in the churches in Asia Minor, but increasingly there were Gentiles in the latter part of the first century. And this kid, I don't know how he came to faith, but he came to faith, he heard the gospel, he heard this man Jesus is risen, he believed, he bent the knee to King Jesus, he says, I'm a follower, and then his family follows. And I always think, what I think of it in my mind, like his family had a bakery, and they were part of the trade guild, that was a thing, and they had a community, and they hung out, and that community got hijacked with this decision. We know that. We know a lot of followers of Jesus, when they made the decision, faced physical persecution in the first century. We know some of them lost their lives, but we know that almost all of them lost credibility. They were socially ostracized. They were shamed by everybody that they used to do life with because of their really radical decision in a world where everybody followed tons of gods to say there is one God, and it's this crucified Jewish man named Jesus, and you all need to follow him too. There's social isolation, and, and it just broke apart. And so I think that began to, uh, if, you're, if your business wasn't in a trade guild, you would begin to lose business. We know this is happening. There was a cost for following Jesus. And I see this young man and his dad and his family getting scared, as any of us would. Few of us have faced consequences like that for following Jesus. And Peter writes this letter from jail himself saying, I have not lost hope. You may have heard that I'm in jail. I've not lost hope. It's still real. And you have a living hope. And you have an inheritance that will not perish or spoil or fade. Hold on. That's the heart of the letter that we've covered so far. So then Peter wants to give them more, wants to remind them the story, and centralizes on Jesus. And so the key idea that we heard read today, and you can look down in your text, I welcome you to do that, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, is that Peter is telling them, Jesus is your cornerstone. Like for us, okay, I, yeah, I, we just, we, we sing that song sometimes, I might have heard that phrase, we don't use that vernacular a lot. But here's an instance where that phrase would have had a heavy weight for them. It would have had such depth and breadth to it. So I want to spend a little time talking about this concept of cornerstone as understood in this mindset of this 19-year-old Gentile kid living in Asia Minor. What would he have heard? What would the churches have heard when Jesus said this? Well, when we think of cornerstone, we think of ceremonial cornerstones. 
that are kind of, you know, third row up on the edge of a building, a new library, there's a date, and all that kind of stuff. And that is a definition of cornerstone. That's not what this word is. This word was deeply, deeply steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. Peter and all the apostles, all the writers in the New Testament would have known the Hebrew scriptures like the back of their hand. And in this passage today, some have argued this passage, these six verses, have more references and allusions and echoes of the Hebrew scripture than any passage in the New Testament. You're going to see some of them. You can read through right now and see some direct quotes that you can click on your little thing and it'll show you which verse in the Old Testament that's easy. Low-hanging fruit. But there's many more echoes and allusions as Peter's building the story that they would have caught like that that we miss. There's a depth to it. And there's a different idea of cornerstone. In their culture, it wasn't a ceremonial thing. The cornerstone had actual uh, worth and value as a structural stone. So it would have been, in their culture, the first stone that was laid in any foundation, in any building. And it would have been laid underground. And it would have been shaped and sculpted. It had to be perfectly 90 degrees. And it had to be laid perfectly, because if it was off by even an iota, the whole structure could be compromised. That's what they would have understood with this idea of cornerstone. It also would have been deeply woven into their idea of temple. We see this in the passage. Look down at it. There's references to the temple. There's connection to this cornerstone and the physical temple that these people would have immediately thought of. So let's talk about the temple a little bit. I think it will be helpful to spend a little time here so we can bring depth to this idea that Jesus is our cornerstone. The first temple was, was built by Solomon. You know, David planned it. David gathered the supplies. Solomon built it. 10th century BCE on what is the temple mount, the same temple mount that you would see today. It, uh, it, t- it was a monstrous building project. You can go to 1 Kings if you want to go there and see this, but it says that Solomon employed 70,000 stone carriers 80,000 stone cutters, and 33,000 foremen uh, to build the temple. They built it relatively quickly. And each stone would have been shaped precisely to fit in the quarry. And we don't know how they transport them. It's a wonder. We have no idea. And then they would be placed. The cornerstone, it would have had to be the perfect stone. It had to be. So they would have been like, nope, not that stone. Nope, not, nope, 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 that one. That one. That's the idea. That's the imagery that we see here. Well, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, that scripture depicts that, and they're all carried away, and Jerusalem sacked, and the, the beautiful temple is torn down. It's in ruins for about 50 years, so about 516 BC. This is where Ezra and Nehemiah, if you've read those books, that's where the story comes back in. Ezra comes back in, and there's a scene in Ezra's books that he relays the stone to what they would call the second temple. It was in ruins, and they kind of cobbled it together, began to rebuild the wall, lay the cornerstone, but it was uh, just a faint imitation of the first temple. They, actually, as they were rebuilding, the people who remembered the first temple wept. Remember that scene? They were joyful, but they wept, because this is just nothing like the first temple was. But it's something. It's functional. God's presence can be there. We can make sacrifices. We can be God's people. So fast forward all the way up to the first century, this is a time of Jesus, where we have arguably, no hyperbole, one of the greatest builders in the history of humanity, uh, King Herod. Uh, he, he was a masterful builder, kind of a madman, but a masterful builder. And so he wanted to uh, expand on the work of the second temple. 
To do so, he had to broaden out the foundations because it was a very narrow on the Temple Mount. They could only build so much. So he built these massive foundation walls, four of them, to surround the temple. And then there was big valleys that he filled in with dirt and packed it in. And then it was called the Temple Mount Plaza. 29 football fields. That's how big it is. So these walls, and then he would, he would build up the temple. So the, the, the building, the temple, this, he used, uh, we know from scripture, he used 1,000 priest masons, 10,000 workers, and to build that plaza took him 18 months. Uh, here's a western wall. My wife and I were uh, in Israel uh, last year. Uh, this is, there's some rubble, but this is kind of one of the walls that's still standing. This would have been one of the foundation walls of the original Temple Plaza Mount. Let me give you some more details. I think this is fascinating stuff. You may think this is nerdy and boring, but you're not preaching. I am, and so you gotta listen. Uh, foundation walls went 65 feet deep underground. Isn't that incredible? It rose over 10 stories above the ground. Uh, each of the walls was, each of the levels was recessed in three centimeters. The wall just kind of kept creeping in so it wouldn't obviously fall over and fall forward. Their stones were still discovering from the original foundations. The smaller ones between two and five tons. But there's one, we got to walk underground. They've now found these tunnels. We got to walk right past where the, that one. And that stone right there is called the Western Stone. That stone is 44 feet long, 15 feet thick, and weighs 570 tons. We don't know how they got it there. Now, I just tell you all this, like, I think it's fascinating. But the enormity of it, can you imagine how perfect that cornerstone must have been for a project like this? It had to be perfect and precise and laid and aligned perfectly for the building, the most important building to the Jewish people is their cultural, social, religious, political center. It's where God's presence dwelt. It had to be perfect, that cornerstone, or the whole thing could come crumbling down. That's the idea of cornerstone. Got it? That's what they would have been thinking. For us, it's like a ceremonial stone. Jesus is that. Whoopee. (laughs) But for them, they're holding on for dear life here. Peter's like, Jesus is your cornerstone. Oh, oh. Furthermore, in Jesus' day, it was regularly understood that all the scripture prophetic passages, and there's a lot of them that refer to the Messiah being the cornerstone, the Messiah being this anointed one, this figure sent by God, they, would, uh, they thought he was a, a military figure, a political figure that would take the boot of Rome off their throat. That's the, the concept they had, that this Messiah was going to be the cornerstone. That idea is in heavy circulation. And then Jesus enters into that. And Jesus enters into these scriptures. Peter, uh, he is going to make tons of references to scripture. It's just saturated here. Peter uses uh, scriptures from six different Hebrew or Old Testament books. Here's a couple in our passage. Some are quoted, some are alluded to that I want to read to you. You can, look at, you can look at 1 Peter. It's fascinating to follow along. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Psalm 118.22. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then finally, Isaiah, written five, six hundred years before the time of Christ. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation, the one who relies on it will never 
be stricken with panic. Jesus again and again and again says, that's me. That's me. That's me. And they're like, no, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, it's me. It's me over here. Uh, that verse, Psalm 118.22, is listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, and 1 Peter. Jesus, when he's telling that parable in the Gospels about the vineyard owner's son who gets murdered, he turns to the religious leaders and essentially says, you're the murderers, and I'm the son. And then he quotes Psalm 118.22. He's purposely stepping into it. He's like, I'm the cornerstone. I'm the only one, only one who can set the building right, who can make sure it doesn't crumble and fall. I am the only one. In that same house, one of our first outdoor projects was building kind of a, a patio. And so uh, we, we, just a simple patio. We didn't have anything back there. We had dogs and the mud and all that. So we, we bought hundreds of like 12 by 12, 12 inch by 12 inch little stone patio stoners and we would lay them out and do that. Well, we learned very quickly by trial and error, I, I mean me, because if my wife would have done it, would have done it right. But I learned very quickly that you had to precisely place the first one. If you didn't place it precisely, duh, the whole thing would be out of whack. This is the idea that's happening here. If we don't have the right cornerstone uh, for our lives, for our churches, for ourselves, we're out of whack. We're out of alignment. And there's gonna be cosmetic structural stuff that can't be addressed and fixed unless we get down to the foundation. I love that it's Peter writing this because Jesus renamed Peter the rock. And at the end of his days, humbled Peter <laughs> says, I'm not the rock. He's the rock. He's the rock. He's the, to use Jesus, he's the living stone. And then here's where Peter begins to build the case and bring that 19-year-old boy in and bring that church that's fear, fear, full of fear and trembling in. And he says, and the cornerstone, off the cornerstone Jesus, God is building this new building that you're all, all of you are living stones. And then he begins to talk about that. And once again, he drenches these passages in Hebrew scriptures. It's interesting, each of the uh, things that he says that they are as this new building built on Jesus, the cornerstone, are the same things that were said about Israel. Because from the beginning, when the whole thing went awry and sent into the world, and God had to reboot the plan for worldwide restoration, calling a family, calling a nation, he said, come on, nation, I'm gonna put this temple right at the heart of you, and my presence is gonna be there, and you're the place where heaven and earth intersect. And I'll send the cornerstone. Well, when the cornerstone came, the cornerstone was rejected. It's not what they thought. He's not what they thought he would be. And so God had to go and launch this other movement that then brought in people like me and people like you and people from all over the world to build this new temple. So Peter is taking those same things that were said about Israel. That project failed and kind of said, this is the new project built on Jesus, filled with the Spirit, and all of you who follow Jesus as the church are the living stones. And so he says these analogies to him. He says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You're a chosen people that the Israelites would have thought of themselves that way. They would have thought that that was tied to their ethnicity. Well, God says, like, you're, you could still be part of this for sure but I'm gonna bring in all these other people. He lists them, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, Romans, Galatians, Cappadocians, on and on and on to be part of this new building, 
all of you. I'm broadening the table. It's a longer table now. Come on in. He says, you're a royal priesthood. The, the role of the priest was to stand between God and humanity to advocate, to be a bridge, to tell about who your God is. And that's the church now. Like, we're there to tell about the goodness and the grace and the love of our God to people who don't know. He says that you are a holy nation. Denise talked about holiness last week, being set apart. And God's people in the Old Testament were set apart, but that project failed. It didn't take root and now this new project is happening in the church. And the church now, you know, that, that nation was holy because a covenant God made directly with them. Now, as we will live out in just a few minutes, we have a new covenant, a new covenant built on the blood and the broken body of Jesus. And then finally, uh, this is a, a nuanced one. You'd have to really know your Hebrew scriptures to get this one. I didn't get it at first. He says, as exiles, as strangers in the strange land, you're now a people for God's own possession. And this comes directly from Hosea 2.23. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Do you get it? Do you get what's happening? Can you feel it? Can you almost be there, those early churches? They're, they're ostracized. They're, their businesses are closed, and they're losing everything because of this radical commitment they've made to follow King Jesus. And from prison, facing his own imminent death, Peter sends them this galvanizing letter saying, don't give up. Don't remember who you are. Remember who your rock is. Remember who your cornerstone is. Remember the call upon your life. All right, as we say all, oftentimes here, so what? <laughs> so what? Cool stuff about the temple, John. That's great for those people. So what? If we just fill our heads here and we just talk and I rant up here and tell some jokes and we sing and go home unchanged, this is fruitless. So for those of us here that follow Jesus, that take it seriously, so what? What does this mean for us? God's people right now. We're on. We're on the clock. This is our time. We're the church. Well, I think Peter would want us to know uh, that we're the third temple. That's the way I kind of think of it. There was a first temple and a second temple. We're the third temple. There's a, there's a group of Jewish radicals. They call themselves the Temple Mount and Land of Israel Faithful Movement. And many years ago, they petitioned the Israel Supreme Court to set a new cornerstone for the third temple. So Orthodox, conservative uh, Jewish folks are determined and they deeply believe there'll be a third physical Temple. So they wanted to lay it, and they wanted to lay it on the Temple Mount. And again, just as an aside, God, please bring shalom uh, to Israel, to the West Bank, to Gaza. My heart breaks for what's going on there. And obviously, the Israel Supreme Court said, no, you know, you can't put it on the Temple Mount because that's held as a, is, was one of the most holy places in the world by multiple different religious groups. So they were angry about that. So they, you can go see it today. They put the new foundation of the temple outside the south entrance uh, called the Dung Gate. And they're waiting. Well, I think Peter would lovingly and kindly tell them, third temple's already here. Third temple's being built. We, we are the third temple. You, you go back and you see uh, the story, the cohesive story in the Bible that leads to Jesus. So in the garden, God's intent was for the garden to be a place where heaven and earth intersected, where heaven met earth. And that's the opening scene we have. Then sin came and wrecked that, so God had to protect that, and God had to relaunch a worldwide restoration movement. 
off this Messiah, off this promised one. So that's what Israel was supposed to be. That's what the temple was supposed to be. That's why the temple, it's interesting, a lot of the design and the ornamentation in the temple was garden-type stuff. That's how they saw it, the place where heaven and earth intersected. But that didn't work, and then here comes Jesus, the cornerstone who's building this new place and this new people called the church. And he's like, the intent of the church is, you need to be an outpost for heaven, for kingdom come. You need to be following me in such a way and inviting me into your community and living and loving in such a way so that heaven is touching earth. So beautiful, so galvanizing for what we're called to do as God's people. You know that thing we, uh, we do as kids and we, I think we teach kids still a day, like here's the church, you know that thing? Like here's the steeple and open the doors and there's all the people. That's right, right? Something like that. Well, don't do that, that's heretical. It's not, it's not, <laughs> right? We're not, it's not a building. I mean, we're teaching our kids terrible things. I mean, you might say, well, uh, Jod, you are remodeling this building. Right. I think it's fine to have beautiful space, to recognize that God's people need places to gather. Gathering here embodied on a Sunday is so important to discipleship, it really is. So I'm not negating building, super grateful for this space. But you're the church. You're the church. You're the living stones being brought together corporately, built on the cornerstone that is supposed to be a place as we gather, as we live, and as we love, that heaven touches earth. There's this new uh, kind of fad over the last decade, pop-up restaurants, are you familiar with this? And they're usually like pretty chic, like expensive restaurants that common folks like myself can never get a table at or can't afford. That's the restaurants that usually do it. And so they'll occasionally just bust out, close down the restaurants, and they'll just pop up somewhere in town, like an outdoor place with picnic tables, and here's this world-renowned chef and the crew and the food. And then they, they sit it out on social media, and whoever gets there first can inhabit the tables. I think it's a beautiful idea. And I was like, we're like the church. We're like the pop-up temple. That's what we're like. Like where we go, church, especially as we're grouped together, where we love, where we pray, where we serve, where we embody Jesus is the new third temple. Peter does uh, some really cool things with the Greek. I won't get all nerdy here, but I think he has a double meaning here when he says the living stones being built together in a spiritual house. That Greek word uh, can be used two ways, and it is throughout Scripture. One, we've been talking about, like a physical space, and he's definitely alluding to that, but it can also mean a household and a family, and that idea is everywhere throughout Peter and Paul that we are the family of God, that Jesus is the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, that we are co-heirs and we're brought in as children of God into a new, a new household by God's grace, by the work of Jesus on the cross. It's everywhere. So I think, I mean, people, scholars argue, which one? And I said, why not both? Why not both? My friend uh, Herman Green, do you guys remember Herman? He's come in and done some stuff. Uh, he's a pastor of Abundant Life up in Northeast Portland. I had the privilege a couple weeks ago. They celebrated their, uh, he and Nike's 11th anniversary there. So I got to gather in the evening with a, a lot of leaders and just celebrate Herman. I love him so much. And uh, he's taught me a lot about pastoring and still does. And one of the things he does that I really appreciate, it threw me at first, I'll be honest, uh, but every time he calls me, or every time I call him, the first thing I hear is, what's up, family? 
That's what he calls me. He doesn't call me John. He's like, what's up, family? And he'll do it publicly. He'll do it personally. We'll be out getting lunch. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, yeah. But I'm like, how beautiful is that? Redirecting by how he calls me out is not just another pastor in town, not just his friend, but I'm his family. I mean, blood relations are important. And as followers of Jesus, we have biblical commitments to our blood relatives. So please hear that. But our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus far surpassed blood relationships. Far surpassed. We just don't get that. As followers of Jesus, if, if somebody said, like, can I see your family picture? Can I take one? You'd be like, you better have a wide, wide, wide lens to get my family in the photo. That's the beauty of what we've been invited into. A couple weeks ago, I gave a sermon on the value of community. Uh, you may have heard it, you may not have. I encourage you, not because I want you clicking on my sermons and watching them, but I, I, I deeply feel this is one of the biggest struggles in the church and in the world, this uh, kind of heresy of individualism. And I challenged you to begin reading the scripture whenever you see the word you to, sit, to put in y'all. Have you been doing that? It transforms scripture. Because that is what the Greek's saying. It's never you, hardly ever individual. It's y'all. It's all of us. We do the 59 one another's, those commands in scripture, together and corporately. This passage, both with the temple imagery and the family imagery, is reinforcing it. And I can't preach it enough. I can't say it enough for my own life and for you. We do this together. We can only do this together. We can only bring kingdom come together. Yes, humans are annoying. I get it. We all annoy each other. It's stressful. It's work. My therapist calls it a workout. He's like, John, when someone's stressing you out, think of it as a workout. <sighs> yes. But there's no substituting. The other is way worse. It's just way worse. So Peter's emphasizing that. All right, finally, uh, there is, with all that said, there is an individual challenge here in this passage that, you know, I was like, do I say it or not? And I just think it's, it's, it's so clear, I have to leave you with it and challenge you with it. As a living stone, yes, that only becomes the temple together, we do it together, there is a challenge that Peter would, would want you to answer as individuals. Uh, is Jesus your cornerstone? Is Jesus your cornerstone? Yeah, you don't, I mean, we're not gonna stand before Jesus with, with anybody else one day. We stand before Jesus one-on-one, right? And we do have decisions to make on what we think about Jesus and how we build our lives. We have stewardship. And I think Peter would say there's kind of two building projects <laughs> that you just see, it looks different in different time periods, but they're always the same. And the first would be, human-built endeavors. Uh, you build your house, you build your community, you build your family on what you own and your possessions and how many clicks you have, how popular you are, your body image, how you look, uh, on and on and on. And Peter would say, every single time that house is gonna come crumbling down. You can say, I don't, I don't agree with you, John, you don't know me, I'm exceptional, you know, <laughs> fine. I'm telling you, it's my job to tell you, Peter's telling you, every single day you build your house on anything but Jesus, it's gonna come crashing down. Eventually, it just will. So that's one building project, and the other is what he's challenging us here, building our lives on Jesus and Jesus alone. Looking to Jesus' work on the cross and is breaking the power of sin and death through the resurrection and say that, that is what I'm gonna build my life on. Is Jesus 
your cornerstone. Peter does so many crafty things in this passage. One is he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16, which says, Isaiah says this, that if we look to Jesus as our cornerstone, we will never be stricken with panic. But that's not what Peter says. Peter, because he's an apostle and a writer of the Bible, he can do this. He remixes it. But he remixes it for his people in his time. And what Peter says is if you look to Jesus as your cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. They lived in an honor-shame culture. We live in a guilt-innocence culture. We don't always catch this stuff. Everything in their culture in the first century ancient Near East was honor-shame. How you were seen, who you hung out with, what guild institutions you were in, who you were having dinner with. And if you were shamed, you were done. That was canceling in the first century. And these first followers of Jesus, this 19-year-old kid, they were the epitome of the shamed ones. They had lost everything that matters in the first century because of their choice to follow Jesus. I say this respectfully, few of us can relate to that. And they're drenched in shame, and I think they're honestly knowing Peter's in jail. Was this all a horrible mistake? Was this true? And I love that he morphs Isaiah 28, 6. He said, trust me. I'm at the near it. I'm facing that. Trust me, it's true. If you build your life on Jesus, the cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. And yeah, we're a guilt-innocence culture, but I think shame is making a big comeback. You know what I'm saying? And so some of you in this room today, you're drenched in shame. It's so deep down in you, you can't even see it. This is Peter saying to you, you build your life on Jesus and you will never be put to shame. Bank on it. He does this other little cute thing with this word scandalon. He's quoting the Hebrew scriptures. That's the Greek word is scandalon. We get our word scandalous. It's translated stumbling block. Jesus is scandalous. And we either go with him or we trip over him. There's no, there's no in between. And the tripping over is project one. I think I can do it. I'm pretty gifted. I got a lot of money. I'm a good looking person. On and on and on and on. It will always come crumbling down. Or we look to Jesus as our cornerstone. Is Jesus your cornerstone? Peter has been preaching this message when he writes 1 Peter for 30 years. How do I know that? Acts 4. And remember the context for early Acts. Peter, he's probably 20-ish, young 20s. The rest of the disciples are teenagers. Let's give him some grace. Like Jesus is crucified, humiliated. They're running for the hills. Peter's denying even knows Jesus. He's drenched in shame. And then lo and behold, Jesus does exactly what he said he would do, and he comes back to life. And he restores Peter on that beach, that breakfast on the beach in, in John 20. And Peter's heart is lit aflame with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God falls, and there's flames, which are a temple analogy, that come down on the people as they become the third temple, and they take to the streets. These same teenagers, there were knees knocking, running for the hills. They're marching through the streets of Jerusalem, preaching Jesus Christ. I would have given anything to be there. This is Peter's sermon. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, Peter just healed a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing before you as well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is Jesus your cornerstone? For those of you who say, yeah, I follow him, do do you? Do we? Do we? Or have we slowly kind of built some side construction projects that will come crumbling down? I'm not trying to be judgy. I'm asking this to myself. As a community, we got to have these talks. For those of you who are like, I see, John, I see that I've been building my life on stuff that will crumble, and I want Jesus to be my cornerstone. You don't have to clean yourself up and come back next week or the week after or get your life in order. You're perfect just like you are. Just come and look to Jesus. Just hold on to Jesus for dear life and begin to look to him as your cornerstone. And you come up and celebrate with us at the Lord's table this morning. Uh, I, uh, there's this great quote by a New Testament scholar, uh, Linhard Gopal. He says, Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. You, you just, everybody runs into Jesus. In the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters Jesus is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes the living stone or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. Is Jesus your cornerstone? I encountered this photo years ago, a real photo, not Photoshop. This was after a hurricane in the Houston area. Isn't that incredible? Can you imagine the, the guy that owns that house or the lady coming out for morning coffee in the morning? Whoa, whoa. I, I want this to be my life. I want it to be your life. I mean, it's not, it's not when this comes. It's coming. Some of you are in the middle of it. It's not if suffering comes. We live in a world not made right. It's when. Will you be ready? Well, if we build our house on anything but Jesus, that's what our lives will look like. If we build our lives on Jesus as our cornerstone, we will stay standing whatever comes our way for the glory of God, to give people a foretaste of when kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven touches earth. I just want to leave you before uh, my friend Portia comes up with these words. Uh, Jesus, I love The Chosen, if you've seen that show, the way they, they, they constructed Jesus thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, which is like his big coming out speech. He, he worked on it for like weeks, which I, I love that. And maybe that's how it happened. I like to think that it is. Well, he landed on this as the closing for his most important speech ever, telling people about his kingdom. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who builds their house on the sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here with us today. We are the third temple. I mean, here at New Hope, we're like a ragtag, scrappy third temple. I love it. But we are your third temple. 
and were the plan that you made uh, to bring the kingdom of heaven uh, to Portland. And uh, we take that seriously, God. You have to be our cornerstone. And God, I just, I confess to you, if this church or my life or our lives are built on anything but you, just strip that stuff out because that's gonna lead to ruin. We wanna be a people that you are our cornerstone. And the way we live and the way we love and the way we gather and pray and embody kingdom come and acts of goodness and justice, give people a taste of heaven on earth. We need you for that, God. Thank you for your great love for us. I pray for the hearts of anybody in this room uh, that does not look to you as their cornerstone, that through the power of your spirit, they may make that decision this morning for your namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Part of this series, uh, we're dealing with people that for most of us, I don't wanna say all of us, most of us have never even experienced the persecution our brothers and sisters were going through and are going through in the world. So we highlight a different country every week uh, to arm you, to pray, and my friend Portia is gonna tell us about our country this Sunday. Morning, church. Here's what it means to be a Christ follower in Eritrea. Eritrea only recognizes three official Christian denominations, Orthodox, Catholic, Lutheran, and evangelical churches must meet secretly. The government actively seeks to infiltrate these underground churches and to imprison their leaders. Imprisoned Christians are not given a trial or allowed to see their families, many of whom do not know where their loved ones are if they're imprisoned, or if they're even still alive. Christians simply disappear, and they are assumed to have been taken by the government into the prison. The conditions inside these prisons are some of the harshest in the world. Christian prisoners are provided meager rations and held in shipping containers in extreme desert conditions for years and years and years. When these long-term prisoners are released, they're blacklisted by the government. They are unable to get jobs, they are washed constantly, and their families lose opportunities. They still need extended physical and emotional help. But despite all this, the church is actually growing as Christians show extreme courage and joy and they embrace the risk for being arrested, for being followers of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for all our brothers and sisters currently in prison for their faith in Eritrea. May they know your presence with them in every moment. Sustain them and their families spiritually, physically, and emotionally. Father, thank you for those who have witnessed their courage and have come to know you for themselves. We pray that all Christians would be able to meet and encourage one another in safety. And we pray with Eritrean believers that you would work in the hearts of those in power and bring them to repentance, that their hearts would be turned so that they would have compassion on their countrymen. Father, we pray that the courage and commitment of the persecuted believers would cause them to ask questions that will lead them to seek truth, 
to seek you. And Father, we pray that their courageous witness may be a challenge to us too, that we'd be people who are of a more robust faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.